through first grade are welcome to participate in Children's Church. They're going to be heading out the doors to our right. And I want to ask the rest of you to open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 2. Um, that might be disorienting to some of you who are expecting us to turn to, uh, to Mark. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get back into Mark. We're going to do a, a marriage mini-series uh, in Mark, uh, chapter 10, here in February. But we've got uh, some fun things to cover between now and then, uh, on the Sundays in January. Before we get into the text, I do want to highlight uh, two things. First is this insert in your bulletin uh, for home groups, which are starting up not this week, but next week. And this will tell you all the different home groups, where they're meeting, when they're meeting, what they're studying. And if you have any questions, you can contact the hosts. Uh, you can contact Kyle. And uh, one of the wonderful ways that we can grow uh, and grow friendships and grow as disciples here at Tabernacle is in home groups. So there's obviously other ways to do that too, but this is bread and butter stuff. And so if you're looking for a way to connect, if you're wanting to make Tabernacle more of a, a, a home for you and uh, to grow more in Christ, home groups are a terrific tool for that. Um, second thing is, I'm just going to give you the heads up so it's not going to feel awkward at the end of the service. <laughs> Last Sunday, uh, I, I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's Scott Seaton. Where's Scott? There he is. Uh, Dr. Seaton, he's my doctor, and he says, Essen, you might want to reconsider that whole holding th hands thing um, for the benediction. And, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's right. Flu season is going like this, and it's not, it's not new. We, we do this kind of every first quarter, but it's official now. No more holding hands during the benediction. We're just going to extend our hands, receive all that blessing, all that grace. Uh, you, you, know, you, you do whatever you want, but I'm just letting you off the hook if you don't want to hold that icky hand beside you. All right, um, I'm going to, I actually have one more announcement. We're going we're gonna to pray uh, one more thing uh, to add to David's prayer because uh, this is uh, breaking news. Uh, so we need to uh, pray for Phil Schmielen. He's one of our members and he's a missionary. Uh, he trains pastors in Africa and uh, Phil's leaving this week. Um, is that right? When are you leaving? Oh, in two weeks. Uh, for Zimbabwe. So he's going to be in Zimbabwe for a, a few weeks training pastors. So let's pray for him real quick. Father, please uh, do bless Phil and his, um, I know there's plenty to prepare uh, as he gets ready to leave and pray for your blessing on his travel, uh, for fruitfulness for his time in Zimbabwe, that um, the pastors and church leaders that, uh, that he's going to be training would be blessed, that they would uh, learn and grow as, as, as he learns and grows too from them. Uh, Lord, would you be glorified? Uh, would your church be strengthened and edified and, and even expand uh, as a result of, uh, of this investment of everybody's time and energy and attention to your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 2. So let's stand in honor of God's word. And I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through 12 for starters. And then we'll, we'll, look, we'll look back at it a little bit in the sermon. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, 
In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, would you bless your word to us this morning? Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's, it's intended to show us Jesus uh, so that we might know what's, what's real, so that we might not wander about in darkness, but have the light of his life. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, does anybody notice anything different? in our sanctuary this morning. It's a little, little less colorful, a little less full of holiday cheer. No more, no more lit trees, no more poinsettias, no more greens and candles and all that. Like, we're done with Christmas, right? We're done. Put it away. You've probably put up your tree, and if you haven't, you're weird. Um, so it's, it's fine. You can do it. You can, you can have Christmas in your heart all year long. No, right, but what are we doing talking about the Magi? This is weird. Um, it's not so weird as it turns out, because the Magi, uh, they were definitely post-Christmas. They were late to the party. Uh, you, you read in the passage that um, you know, what the Magi came to when they arrived in Bethlehem is they didn't go to the manger. Uh, they went to a house, uh, and they didn't see the baby Jesus. They saw the child. Uh, those are deliberately in, in, uh, different words in the original Greek. Uh, there's a different word for baby than there is for child, and this is the child. So this is toddler Jesus we're talking about. The, the Magi were late to Christmas. So, you know, we're kind of early talking about the Magi, so to speak, but it's, it's fitting. It's good, and we're going to look at how these foreign, you know, kings as they were, or Magi, uh, come to Jesus, and then we're going to talk about Jesus ending up on foreign soil down in Egypt, sort of as a result, this, this visit from the Magi is a catalyst for uh, Joseph and Mary fleeing to Egypt for their lives, uh, uh, for, in particular to protect Jesus' life. Uh, and all this comes about because the grace of God that comes to us is a very foreign kind of grace. And so let's talk about these, these foreign leaders, this foreign soil, and this foreign grace. Um, so we sing at Christmas, or, you know, it's not uncommon to hear, I, I should probably say. We don't really sing it because the, the hymn is got not, not everything great about it. Uh, it's a little bit misleading. But we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts and traverse afar. Um, you, you know that hymn? All right, so, so let's unpack that. Uh, there's there's some, some things in there that we're not quite sure about that may need to be reconsidered. And, and the first thing is just how many of these magi are there? We associate the number three with them, uh, presumably because there's this 
matching of the three gifts with presumably three magi. So, okay, you know, there's the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, so I guess there must have been three people, three individuals who offered those three individual gifts. We've even in the sixth century given them names, um, uh, Balthazar, Melchior, and Casper. I mean, I, they had names, but I have no idea where those names come from. I mean, there's some legend and some apocryphal you know, document I know that's been quoted as a source for that, but th- th- those are not their names. Um, we don't know how many there were. There could have been three. There could have been 12, some traditions say. There could have been, you know, uh, there was a plurality. We know there was more than one, because magi is a plural word, but we don't really know how many. Uh, we don't really know their names. We don't even know if they're kings. We say they're kings. Uh, Tertullian, one of the church fathers in the third century, suggested they were kings. I mean, the, the logic's sound. The logic's good. He's looking at Psalms, like uh, Psalm 68 says, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Psalm 72, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. And then listen to Isaiah chapter 60. All nations shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news in the praises of the Lord. So, sure sounds like kings, right? But we don't really know. What we do know, what, what, what Matthew tells us is that they're magi. Uh, and so we don't even know that, that they're from the Orient. When we think of the Orient, we, we think of sort of maybe East Asia, but that sort of works because they're from the East, uh, but, but really that word magi is our clue. Uh, the best evidence we have of the real identity of, of these, these individuals. Uh, and magi is a word that comes from another language. Basically, it, it comes from Persian, uh, the Persian language, uh, which is magus for the, the wise people. Uh, literally like the, the astronomers and the, the ones who were giving counsel to the rulers because back then, you know, that's, everybody's trying to figure out what's next, what's going to happen, and they're looking at the stars and the planets and trying to find some signs in the heavens. Uh, the Magi were Persian, which now modern-day Iran, uh, were the Persian priests in the Zoroastrian tradition, the, the, the traditional religion of Persia. Uh, and that's who the Magi were. Foreign leaders and counselors and priests who are very educated, very scholarly, and they see this heavenly phenomenon, they, they, they see this thing that they haven't seen before, that they weren't expecting to see, and they're going, what in the world is happening here? Uh, and they, they go and they follow that phenomenon. Now, that's another thing that, you know, Matthew chapter 2 raises all kinds of questions about, like, well, who are the Magi, and how many are there, and what were their names? And then there's the whole question of the star, this light that appears in the heavens. And some have thought, well, maybe it's a confluence of, of planets and alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, or maybe it was a comet, or maybe it was a supernova. But the way that Matthew describes it, I think our, our, the best, uh, safest place to land is it's something supernatural. It seems to move. It seems to to lead them, and specifically even to Bethlehem. And we're told they're rejoicing exceedingly when they see this, this light, this star, all right? But there's 
we just want to validate the questions. They're good questions. They're healthy questions. But don't get too hung up on the minutia. I really like how uh, James Boyce, who is the, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, he's with the Lord now, but uh, tremendous pastor and author. But he, he wrote this in his commentary. It says that the Bible shows really kind of little interest in these details, even though we might be interested. The Bible shows little interest. The fact that so little information of this kind is given shows that Matthew was not interested in how many wise men there were or the length of their journey or the star. Rather, he was interested in the fact that from the very beginning of this gospel, Gentiles came to worship the Jewish Messiah. That the nations, rulers and leaders from foreign lands would come to, to bow at the feet of this toddler who is king of the Jews, right? And they unload their gifts. Um, we're, we're told that they went into the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gold, um, frankincense, and myrrh. That, uh, that same hymn or Carol, you know, We Three Kings, actually goes on to, to talk about those gifts. Uh, the, the lyrics say that there are these symbolic gifts, that gold is, you know, rightly fit for a king. It's the king of metals. You give the king of metals to the king of kings. Um, and that uh, frankincense is this incense uh, fit for a priest. Uh, the, the priest would burn the incense in the temple, and the, the smoke from the incense is like the prayers of the people rising before the Lord. And and all that symbolism. And then the myrrh, right, is this costly spice that was um, used in, in, a, in large portions to embalm the dead, uh, to give dignity to somebody at their funeral, and to, um, frankly, you know, because of the, the period in which they lived, it would resist decay, mask the odor. And so there's this emphasis on all the symbolism of these gifts. And I, I think some of it may have some merit, but I really think what we need to take to the bank is not the allegory for what these gifts may, you know, be signifying, but really the, the kind of gift they are, are they're, they're royal gifts. They're expensive, over-the-top things that are truly fit for a king. And so when the magi come, you need to see that their question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What they're not saying is, where is the one who is to become king of the Jews? They are bowing at the feet of the one who they honor and acknowledge as the reigning king of God's people. And they're giving him gifts as they would a king. Not a future king, not you know, one who's depending on, on King Herod to bestow this title on the, the, the successor king. Jesus' authority doesn't come because any one person or any one administration says, well, okay, Jesus, now you can come in and rule us. Jesus rules because he has a right to rule because he's God. And in one of the most mysterious aspects of what we believe, God was wrapped up 
in that human toddler baby's body as king. As king of kings. As lord of lords. And the point of all this is that these magi, these, these wise men presumably from you know, Persia, are making this journey, they're following this light, they've got enough sense, they've got enough commitment and enough conviction that they would leave everything, go through the time and the expense and the ardor of this journey and, and go to Jerusalem and then go to Bethlehem and make intense search for this child because they know that a real king has been born and they're going to worship him. And look at the contrast between these foreign influential people these foreign leaders, these foreign kings maybe, who knows. But they are coming based on a sign from heaven. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. But who's not coming? The human king, Herod. The priests aren't coming. The scribes aren't coming. The, the Pharisees aren't coming. They have, they have God's word. They've got the prophecy from Micah chapter 5. Yeah, the King's going to be born in Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem if you want to see him. But they don't follow. And in fact, Herod comes up with this plot. You know, he's plotting. He's deceiving the Magi, thinking that he can, you know, pretend like, oh, yeah, go find him. And when you find him, let me know. And I'll go worship him too. No. His plan is to get rid of all rivals. And there's the slaughter of the innocents where Herod issues the, the edict to kill all baby boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. He doesn't go to worship. He wants to, to get rid of the competition. So it's this contrast we're meant to see, right? Like the Magi come and all they have is just this sign from heaven and the Spirit working in their hearts, giving them this, this unction to go. And meanwhile, those with God's word are, are doing nothing. And they're living these lives that don't show any evidence that they really are welcoming the one who God is going to send. It's instructive to us who have God's word. And how are we living and are we following Jesus? Are we seeking him? Are we bowing before him, et cetera? Uh, because these foreign uh, kings did, these foreigners did. And then uh, I want to pick up in verse 13, if you still have your Bible open, this is what happened. God gave Joseph a dream so that Jesus would be protected from Herod's slaughter of the innocents. And in verse 13, when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. That's uh, from Hosea 11. So, the young boy Jesus goes from being worshipped by these, you know, foreigners to himself going, you know, being taken by his mother and his father to foreign soil. Jesus goes from being worshipped by foreign people to walking on foreign soil. And he's there uh, with his mother and his father in Egypt. We don't know how long exactly, at least until the death of, of King Herod. Uh, and this is significant because Jesus not only receives adoration from the nations, he goes and you know, to other nations himself, even at a young age, um, to Egypt, to Africa, to the continent of Africa. 
intercontinental travel trip, you know, right? Across borders and even across land masses. Um, listen to Ralph Watkins, who wrote one of the chapters in Aliens in a Promised Land. Um, Anthony Bradley edited this book about the black Christian experience in North America. And, and in um, Ralph Watkins' chapter, he says, our faith, not meaning just black Christian faith, like our faith, the church, black, white, red, whatever. Our faith is rooted in Africa. Thomas Oden, now Ralph Watkins is going to quote another uh, black scholar, Thomas Oden, puts it succinctly when he says that early Christianity tells a historical narrative from the very beginning, Genesis, from Joseph to Moses uh, to the Exodus to the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt and then to the Ethiopian eunuch that you run across in the book of Acts, right? So these are African events that define the whole subsequent narrative of salvation history in the Christian view. So what what do we mean by this? What's the significance of this? Well, this is not just anecdotal stuff in Matthew chapter 2 about, oh yeah, Joseph has a dream, takes Mary and Jesus, and they go to Egypt for a little bit, for a little R&R, right? And then they come back. No, they're fleeing for their lives, and it's a fulfillment of prophecy that out of Egypt I called my son, not just speaking about Israel's exodus, but truly about the Son of God who would spend time in Egypt and then come back uh, to Israel. So don't miss the significance of God calling Jesus to Africa and back. And don't miss the importance of these Persian priests, these these wise men uh, who come to bow before Jesus. He's not just the Savior of Israel. Uh, He's not just the Savior of, you know, Europe or North America. He's the Savior of all nations. Latin America, and South America, and Africa, and Asia, and you know, you fill in the blank. Savior of all. King of kings, Lord of lords. So just to give you some perspective here, in 1900, um, missiologists kind of enjoy these figures, and they're really instructive for, for all of us, too. In 1900, in Europe, in the European nations, uh, the church, uh, the Christians in, in Europe, represented uh, two times the number of all other Christians all over the world. There were twice as many uh, people who followed Jesus in, in European nations as there were in the rest of the world in 1900. So now we're 120 years later. And now, the majority of those who follow Jesus live in Latin America and South America and Africa and Asia. It's flipped. And the the church is on the decline in in Europe and in North America. I mean, say it's on decline in a sense. This is um, Gordon Conwell Seminary uh, does a report, what do they call it? Uh, it's called the International Bulletin for Missionary Research. So in that, in that bulletin recently, they were talking about the growth of the church in Europe, okay? Uh, and they were comparing the growth of the church in Europe to other places. The growth of the church in Europe uh, since 1900 has been roughly 52%. Church has grown, Christians, you know, following Jesus, 
have grown 52% of the population uh, since 1900. Sounds great, except when you compare that with the fact that the population has grown by 73% in Europe. So it's, the church is actually shrinking in Europe compared to the overall population growth. Now, so 52% growth in the past, we'll just say 100 years in Europe. The church in Africa has grown 52% in the past 15 years compared to the past 100 years of Europe. And so all over the world, like, and, and especially you know, south of the equator, that's where the church is growing incredibly. And so Jesus is being worshipped by these other people, other nations, and, and foreign places that, that we need to kind of wrap our head around this, and it has implications for how we look at the map, how we look at the world. We don't look at the world the way the world looks at the world. We have to look at the world through the eyes of those who are, are following Jesus, and that means we look at, we look at Africa differently. Uh, like, we need to see Africa as a continent, not as a country, right? I mean, you know that. Africa's not a country, but we just sort of seem to, in our ignorance, especially uh, among, you know, tr typically, I'm not trying to um, lay any blame on anyone in particular, but I think it's safe to say that there are some stereotypes that, that apply and that we, as, you know, as a predominantly white congregation, we want to think of Africa in sort of one color, uh, one uh, in, in one uh, characteristic, uh, and, and it's not. It's not just one. It's incredibly diverse. Africa is not uniform. It's as different as Egypt is from Ethiopia. It's as different as Malawi is from Madagascar. There's tremendous history there, biblical history in Africa, and we ought to be paying attention. And it's an opportunity uh, for a traditionally white church and a majority white community to, to bring some healing and possibly some understanding and some conversation to our black brothers and sisters, some of the pain that they experience from their white brothers and sisters, is they, they get a sense from our ignorance, from some of the things that we say or that we don't say, that we view them as uniform. We view Africa as uniform. We view African Americans as uniform. They're not. They're diverse different personalities, different preferences, different cultural expressions, and different histories. It's good for us to embrace that and show some awareness of that and hopefully bring some healing and reconciliation and solidarity. Um, so that's with regard to Africa, but we've also taught, mentioned Persia, right? What about Persia? We need to see nations like Iran, modern-day Iran, as a place where the church has spread, um, where we have brothers and sisters in Christ and if you look back at Matthew chapter 2, they were among some of the very first to bow at the feet of Jesus. So for, uh, one, one story from when I uh, got to go, we, we made several trips to outside of London as an organization called Elam Ministries. The Elamites um, were the modern-day Iranians. And the Elamites were mentioned among the nations that came at Pentecost, right? And the Holy Spirit's poured out. Um, and so Elon Ministries trains Iranians in Farsi to be, you know, uh, leaders for the church. And we got to spend time with them. And one of those trips, I sat at a lunch table across from Isa Debaj. Uh, Isa is the Arabic, uh, Arabic word uh, for Jesus. Uh, that's the, the name Jesus in Arabic. Um, so Isa is the son of Mehdi Debaj. And I 
first heard about Mackie Debage as a college student at an Urbana InterVarsity conference. Uh, because Mehdi Dabaj was a convert from Islam to Christianity, started following Jesus, um, and became a pastor in Iran. And then the Cultural Revolution happened around the early 70s in Iran. And after the Cultural Revolution, the church was persecuted. And that meant Mehdi Dabaj, as a pastor now, was being targeted by his government. He was arrested in 1983, was thrown into prison, was beaten and tortured, uh, was condemned to die as a, as a convert, which is against uh, Islamic law. But because of international pressure, he was, he was let out of prison, but his death sentence was never removed. And they found his martyred body in a park in Tehran. This is an Iranian pastor and I'm sitting across the lunch table from his son. And it just instructs us as Christians to be thinking about the world differently, about thinking about current global events through a different lens. Don't look at the nation of Iran just simply as Iranians. We have brothers and sisters in Iran who are faithful, even unto death. So we're not looking at global events as Americans first. We definitely look at them through our political lens. We look at the world as Christians first. And we see brothers and sisters all over the world who are following Jesus and bowing before him. The one who brought foreigners to to him, and then who went to foreign places. And this is because he is the king of kings. Let me kind of lighten the mood a little bit here by just asking you, how many of you like Italian food? (laughs) Great. How many of you like Chinese food? Great. How many of you like uh, Himalayan food? Or, uh, I don't know. You can go to uh, Charlottesville, by the way, and you can find Himalayan food. You can find Malawian food. You can find... uh, Ukrainian restaurants. I mean, they have a restaurant for everything. And we love foreign, I mean, you know, going out to eat and experiencing new and exotic things, except unless you're a teenager. Um, but one of the measures of, of something being truly great is, it's, is the broadness of its appeal. Like, okay, yeah, most people like Italian food. I don't know if there's really an argument to make for what's the best food in the world, um, but uh, it's, it's certainly not English food. Um, I don't know what the, what the best food is, but you can make a similar kind of uh, experiment, thought experiment with art. And, uh, and John Piper mentioned something like this when he was saying that, you know, the measure of, a, of, of the greatness of a, of a piece of art, maybe it's a painting, is the broadness of its, of its appeal, uh, of its cultural appeal. I mean, every, every nation and every you know, even major city, it seems, has its own museum, and there's some unique works of art there. But, but the kind of stuff that goes on, you know, tour from, you know, this New York museum to a museum in Beijing to a museum in uh, Saudi Arabia or whatever, you know, that stuff is the one that people around the world go, my goodness, that's a Van Gogh. Or, you know, my goodness, that's a Picasso. Um, 
and, and people's jaws <coughs> drop and so on. So what's the broadness of this appeal? What, what, are willing, what are people willing to pay for it? Like if it goes up for auction at Sotheby's? Um, now, to be honest, people are, some crazy people are willing to spend a whole lot of money on really crappy art. That's beside the point. I'm talking about like stuff that really people spend tons and tons of money on. What's its appeal broadly, globally? And, and here's you know, Piper's, Piper's point here, is that the fame and greatness and worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. And then you apply that to Jesus. And then Piper says when Paul, when the Apostle Paul claims in, in Romans 15, praise the Lord, all you nations, and let all the peoples extol him, he is saying that there is something about God that is so universally praiseworthy, so profoundly beautiful, and so comprehensively worthy, so deeply satisfying, that God will find passionate admirers in every diverse people group in the world. Universal appeal. Passionate admirers, deeply satisfying. So this is probably a good time for me to ask you directly. Are you his passionate admirer? Do you find Jesus to be deeply satisfying? Do you join these worldwide throngs of worshipers who say of Jesus, he is great and glorious and he is worthy to be praised and do you give your life to following him? And if not, why not? And if the passion's pretty tepid, what's blocking you? What's hindering you? Do we bow before him or not? Jesus is not just the king of the Jews or the king of this nation or that nation, but he's, he's the king of every nation. He's the king of kings and Lord of Lords, and his appeal transcends time and culture, and it will continue on into eternity, which brings us to a very interesting kind of um, contradiction, puzzle, conflict. It has to do with the foreignness of God's grace. Yeah, there's foreign leaders coming to Jesus, and yeah, he goes to foreign soil, but, but ultimately what we need to see is his foreign grace because uh, Jesus came to draw all people, all, all nations to himself, and he calls us to go to all people and call them uh, to him to bow before him. But, but as much as he is the savior of the world and is worshiped around the world, for some reason, the majority of the world rejects him. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to life. The majority of the world rejects him. Why? Well, the reason the world rejects Jesus is the same reason why it rejects anything that's different from it. We, we, we sort of are suspicious of anything alien, anything foreign. And if there's something foreign about Jesus, it is certainly his just sort of you know, nagging habit of referring to human beings as sinful. How did you feel in that first uh, membership question that we asked our new members? Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? 
without hope save in his sovereign mercy. You think the world reacts well to that? No. And yet Jesus would consistently say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the world hated him for that. And he would say it so often and mean it you know, to, to, to such a, a degree that he would also say that, you know what, you have no hope save in my sovereign mercy. You cannot save yourself. You can't do this on your own. You, and no matter how good you try to be, we, we, you know, our sin continues to trip us up. And that means that we need a foreign salvation. We need Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. I mean, we think, the world thinks that we can save ourselves, and anyone can really if they just try hard enough, if they at least try as hard as we do. And the world hates Jesus for saying that you don't have what it takes. You can't do this yourself. As the gospel comes to us and Jesus comes to us, and he says, no, it's not about what you earn and what you achieve. It's about what you believe and what you receive. From the king of kings who came into this world naked, began his life as a naked infant and ended his life as a naked criminal. All those portrayals of the crucifix where there's this kind of wavy, billowy loincloth are fiction. Because the soldiers stripped him of his garments and they rolled dice to see who's going to get a little something for the something. And Jesus hung naked bearing our shame, bearing our guilt, bearing our condemnation onto himself because he loved us. He's the naked king doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, which is to get rid of our sin, to pay our debt, to forgive us. I can't forgive myself for what I've done against God. God has to forgive me. You can't forgive yourself for what you, how you sinned against God. God has to forgive you. And he does that through Jesus, who died on that cross, was buried in a tomb, and then rose again to demonstrate to the world that our debt is paid. It's done. It's finished. He's not dead anymore. He's alive, and he's risen, and he gives us something in return for belief in him. He covers our nakedness. He covers our shame, and he covers our guilt. Isaiah described it as a robe of, of righteousness. A robe of God's approval and acceptance. But not because of the gold stars that I've somehow merited, but because of the merit of Jesus. Which I can't earn and I can't achieve. But we can all believe and receive. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the King of kings and Lord of lords who was worshipped by foreigners, who went to a foreign land, who brings us his foreign grace, this grace that comes down out of heaven to us who are helpless. Lord, would you just remind us to, to repent, remind us to stay humble, remind us that everything in our life is grace and goodness from you. And Lord, teach us patience and teach us kindness and uh, teach us to look at the world through the eyes of the kingdom, the eyes of the gospel. We have brothers and sisters everywhere. We're, 
where Jesus is a, a, a great and glorious God who is worshipped by every tribe and tongue and language and people, not just by our own little sequestered group. Lord, would you get glory in our lives as we share this good news and the, the glory of Jesus with our neighbors and with the nations. And Lord, please increase our zeal and our passion for him. We pray in his name. Amen.